Welcome back to the MicroConf podcast. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and this week we have a MicroConf refresh episode where we look back at one of the best talks from the last 11 years of running MicroConf. And I was trying to remember the other day, I believe we've run more than 30 events now. Today's episode is the audio from April Dunford's talk at MicroConf US in 2022 in Minneapolis, and she tells us how to craft a story that sells. It was one of the most popular talks at that event, so if you missed it, you're going to want to keep listening. In addition, you can head over to microconf.com YouTube to find the full video of this talk along with her slides. So with that, let's dive right in. Like, how many of you think that sales is hard? How many of you are liars? <laughs> nah, I'm just coming some people are. You know, in startups, generally, we think sales is hard. Like, we come from a product background. We come from an engineering background. And sales is hard. And unfortunately, we have to figure it out because we don't get to stay in business if we can't figure out how to get stuff into customers' hands, get stuff to make, get customers to make a purchase. But... Um, I actually don't want to talk about that today. What I want to talk about today is kind of, I want you to think about stepping out of your vendor shoes for a minute and step into the shoes of a customer. And, and what I want to talk about is how hard it is to buy. Buying is hard. Now I know some of you are like, what? That's stupid. Buying's not hard. I wish that's all I had to do all day, just sit around and buy stuff. Um, but it, buying actually is really hard. Like, let's think about for a minute, for a B2B product, how does a B2B buying process actually get started? You know how it gets started? The boss wakes up in the morning and says, ugh, I hate the way we do invoicing. I hate it. It's full of mistakes, it takes too much time, we need to do invoicing better. Or the boss wakes up and says, ah, I hate the way we track customer data, it's terrible, maybe we need a CRM. I think maybe we need to buy a CRM, we should buy a CRM. Or the boss wakes up and says, you know, I can't, the team's not working together good. We don't collaborate well, people don't share information well, we need something to kind of fix that. And does the boss go and buy it? No. The boss does not. What the boss does is he walks into the, into the office and says, Janet, buy us a CRM, would you? Go, go get out there, look at the CRM things and fix this problem for me. And Janet's like, crap, crap, I don't want to do that, for starters. Two, yeah, maybe I've used a CRM, but I know nothing about CRMs. I don't know who the CRM vendors are. I spend zero amount of my time thinking about this stuff. I don't know who the vendors are. I don't know who the, I don't know what the key features are. I don't know, I, I don't know anything. This is almost universally true in B2B software. The person making the purchase decision for your software has never bought software like that before, ever. So the first thing they have to do when they embark on this process is they got to figure out how to make a shortlist. So they Google it. And what they see is 900,000 million companies that look exactly the same, that look like they do the exact same thing. There's so many. Like, so I got Loom Escapes, and I got Gartner Quadrants, and I got all kinds of things, and I go on G2 Crowd, which is terrifying. There are 9,000 company logos up in the top right, and they're all amazing, and does a 4.7 versus a 4.8 on customer satisfaction matter? I have no idea. There's all these things. 
And it, the data actually shows that a typical B2B buyer consults seven information sources before they make a purchase decision, seven. And interestingly, if you look at the top ones there, a lot of those ones on top are us. So they're coming to our website, they're looking at our information, they're listening to our podcast and watching our videos, they're, maybe they're signing up and doing a free trial, they're talking to our sales rep, they're going to our events, doing that kind of stuff. And what do they get when they get there? Well, they see a lot of information that looks good, seems credible, but is also totally contradictory. So everybody's website says, we're the number one supplier of blah. And it's like, all 29 of you can't be the number one supplier of blah. There's something's going on here that all sounds good, but I don't really know what, what to do. And then if I'm lucky enough and I get through this process, I decide on a short list, then Janet's gonna call a bunch of you and book a sales meeting maybe, if you got salespeople. And then what happens in the sales meeting? Well, your sales rep is like, welcome to my wind tunnel features. You know, I'm gonna give you the product walkthrough. Here's a feature, here's a feature, here's another feature. Oh, did I mention we have features? I got this one, that one, this one, that one, that one, that one. There's another one. And Janet's like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to make sense out of any of this. So buyers are drowning in information that they can't necessarily make sense of. So the question is, like, do we actually know what a buyer wants? And so there's interesting data on this. They're drowning in information. Now, in the interesting data on this is um, for B2B purchase processes, 40%, uh, so four out of 10 times, when a company embarks on a purchase process, it ends in no decision. 40%. <laughs> and if you look at the data on that, it's not like it ended in no decision because we thought all the solutions were crap. It actually ends in no decision because there was so much information and there were so many different options, we couldn't narrow it down to an option and feel good about making that choice. So we just said, you know what? The spreadsheet's okay. It's okay to just do this on a Google Doc. Let, let's just not make a decision at all. So customers can't figure out what to do, so they actually do nothing. It's a terrifying stat. And in every company that I worked for, that was actually true. Like we lost about 30, 40% of our deals if we were tracking it in the CRM. We lost to no decision, which means we lost to the status quo, which means we're actually getting beat by Excel and Google Docs and things like that. Um, what do customers actually want from us? This is interesting data too. Um, so um, uh, there's been a bunch of studies done on this where they went and interviewed B2B enterprise software buyers and said, hey, what do you want in a sales meeting? And the responses there are really telling. So the number one thing that people actually want from you as a vendor if they get down the path is um, they want perspectives on the market. And they want help comparing alternatives, navigating alternatives. That would make sense, right? We have too much information. I'm trying to figure stuff out. I want help um, making sure that I avoid potential landmines. I, I want you to educate me on issues and outcomes. This is not stuff about our product, is it? It's more about the market and where we fit with everybody else's solution. That's what we want. So we're not actually giving buyers what they want for the most part in our marketing and sales efforts. We don't talk about the competitors. 
We figure nobody wants to hear our opinion about the competitors. We're not trying to educate customers on how to make trade-offs. And instead what we're doing is we're just contributing to this information overload. And it's kind of weird too because Janet hasn't spent five seconds thinking about CRM or how to pick a good CRM or what's the best CRM on the market. And we, the CRM vendor, that's all we think about. That's all we do all day. So we have this deep, deep, deep expertise on exactly what Jan is trying to figure out, but we refuse to give it to her. Weird, right? Um, so customers, they actually don't want a product sales pitch. What they want is market insight. So I'm gonna give you a really stupid example and then I'm gonna give you two like software examples that are less, less stupid, but the first really stupid example is just, you know, for education purposes. Um, this is a story, it's called April Buys a Toilet. Um, so uh, I live in Toronto. I don't know if you've ever been to Toronto. Toronto's filled with really old crappy houses and all of those really old crappy houses have terrible bathrooms. I bought one of those old crappy houses with a terrible bathroom. I hire a contractor, contractor's fixing it. He says, April, you need to go buy a toilet. And I'm like, no problem, I'm gonna go buy a toilet. How hard can that be, right? So I go to the toilet store and man, there's a lot of toilets. Oh my God, there's so many toilets. The first story I walk in, they, they, there's literally that look up. A hallway of like a hundred toilets. Toilet salesman comes up to me and says, can I help you? And I said, yes, you can. I need to buy a toilet. And like, how do I do that? And he says, uh, well, you're looking for a particular kind of toilet? <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I don't know. And he says, well, just go over there. The toilets are over there. Go over there. Look at all the toilets. All the prices are there. Just, you know, when you're ready to buy one, just call me. I'll be over here. So I go to the, so I go to list of toilets and they got all these features and some of them cost a hundred bucks and some of them cost a thousand bucks and they all look identical like they all look the same and I'm terrified and I leave <laughs> like I don't, I don't know how to buy a toilet so I go to the second store I get toilet salesman number two and I'm like he says can I help you ma'am and I'm like yes you can I'm here to buy a toilet and he says well what kind of a toilet are you looking for and I said I'm not sure I really know yet. And he said, do you want a single flush toilet or a dual flush toilet? I'm like, is that important? Just a personal preference. Some people like a single flush toilet. And I'm like, okay. And he says, you want flapless or no flap? What's the flap? I don't even know what the flap is. I'm like, like, is that important? Do I need to know about the flap? Because no, not really. I mean, some people like the flap. I mean, maybe you want the flap. And I'm like, I don't have enough information to actually purchase a toilet. So I leave there and I go home and, and I get out the Google. And so I'm like, I need to actually educate myself on toilets because otherwise I'm gonna buy the wrong toilet. And the last thing I wanna do is ever buy a toilet again. So I go on Google and I find consumer reports and all these other things. And there's so many features on toilets. I had no idea. There's like uh, water efficiency and different seat heights. I had no idea. Dual flush technology, flapper, flapperless. There's, you know, visible, whatever, whatever trapways. I don't even know what a trapway is. Consumer Reports has a thousand things and they're rating all these toilets against all these things. And I'm like, I have no idea. Here's the most disgusting thing I learned about toilets. Now I'm gonna teach you and you won't be able to unsee it once I tell you. There is a rating and it's called the MAP rating. And this is done by an independent standards body and they take the toilets and they test them to see how much solid waste the toilet can flush. And 300 to 650 grams is very good, but there are some toilets on the market that can flush 1,000 grams, which is 2.2 pounds. 
Yeah. I went to the grocery store and bought a bag of carrots, two pounds. I'm like, it's ruined me for two pound things forever. I can't look at two pound things anymore without thinking of the MAP score. And so at this point, I officially have more toilet knowledge than I want ever. Parts of my brain are occupied with this that I wish weren't. And I'm like, surely there's somebody out there that's done this for me, looked at all these things, figured out, you know, and just tell me which toilet I'm supposed to buy. And so then I find this guy, this Terry loves toilets. Um, and he's a toilet expert, and every year he puts out the rating of toilets. And uh, the really, but even Terry is like so deep into the toilet tech that I have no idea what he's talking about. So there's a thing on there that says, um, you know, find out which water efficient, gravity assisted, PF2 slash whisper vac gateway toilets that work. Because apparently some of them don't. <laughs> this guy's like the Gartner group of toilets. So at this point, I'm like, forget it. I can't do it. I'm not doing it. I'm a busy person. I don't have time for this. So I am not buying a toilet. So I go back to my contractor and I'm like, look, I'm not buying. What about the old toilet? Let's just use the old toilet. We'll just keep the old toilet. He's like, lady, we kind of broke the old toilet, take it in, it's long gone. <laughs> you can't, go, it was 20 years old, why would you want to keep the, and I was like, because buying a toilet is taking up my whole life over here, I don't want to do it. And I'm like, well, that's it, maybe we're just going to have a bathroom with no toilet. I'm like, hey kids, you know how the dog goes in the backyard? We all go in the backyard now, that's how this works. But anyways, the contractor's like, no, you got to buy a toilet. I'm like, okay, okay, I got to buy a toilet. Um, so I go to the last toilet store, and I meet this guy. Um, it's actually stock photo, it's not the guy. But can you believe there's a stock photo of that? That in itself is funny. Um, but I meet this guy, and uh, I can't remember his name, so I'm gonna call him John. It's funny, right? I thought of that, John. If I was in the UK, I'd call him Lou. Anyway, so John comes out, and I have this amazing interaction. So John comes up and says, uh, can I help you? And I said, yes. I need to buy a toilet. It's a bit of a toilet emergency here, John. We got to get this done today. And he goes, it's terrible buying a toilet, isn't it? Too many choices. Look at all the toilets we got, so many choices. He says, look, first thing you got to know about toilets. Notice how these ones over here are all cheap. These ones over here are kind of like, there's kind of a jump. They're way more expensive. That's because these ones are for places where a toilet doesn't get used much. Maybe you got a toilet in the basement or a vacation property or something and they don't get used much. So they use cheaper parts and that's fine because they don't get a lot of flushes and they'll last you forever and that's fine. So, you know, if you don't use the toilet every day, don't pick one of those. And I'm like, huh, interesting. Well, I do use this toilet. It's going to get a lot of use. So I, let's, let's focus on these. Okay. So now we're down to half the number of toilets. And then he says, okay, see those ones over there? They're fashion toilets. Some of them are purple and some of them are made out of brass and some of them have fancy things. Are you, do you care about fashion? I'm like, not at all. So he's like, okay, we're going to eliminate all those. So now we're down to kind of a reasonable number of toilets here. I'm like, this is looking good. And then I said, well, what's the difference between these and these? And he says, mainly the big thing is space. Like some toilets, some bathrooms are really small. And so if you don't have a lot of space, we put the tank in the wall and we drywall it and then just the bowl and there's less space. And he says, how big is your bathroom? I pull out the plans or whatever. He says, oh, you got a lot of space there. He says, you probably want to go with the one that's not in the wall because if it breaks and it's in the wall, you got to get in the drywall, it's hard to fix, whatever. So, okay, fine. So we're into that. Now we're down to two toilets. I'm so excited. I'm like, there's American standard toilet, a total toilet, total toilet's a hundred bucks more. I'm like, how do I pick between the two? And he says, well, you know, they're really kind of the same. Like there's really no different here. They're both great toilets and both good brands, whatever. And I'm like, what toilet would you pick? And he says, well, 
I'd spend the hundred bucks extra, go for the Toto toilet. Like nobody ever brings one back. Nobody ever complains about it. And if it was me, I'd never want to think about buying a toilet again. I'm like sold. So you slap down the thing. So I get it done in like 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So what happened there? Like, was that guy giving me a hard sell on toilets? No. What he was doing was sense making. He's helping me make sense out of all this information, all my choices, and he did it in a way that I could understand. He wasn't talking to me about the PV slash two, whatever. He did not mention the MAP score once, which I appreciated. And, and it, it, you know, and he helped me get this thing. And not only did I get the thing, I made a choice that I feel good about. Like, I feel like I made the right choice. I feel like it was an informed choice. So now think about how hard that was. That is a product that I'm familiar with. That is a product that I'm a user of, a decades-long user of. Imagine how hard it is to buy your stuff. Your AI, machine learning, advanced data analytics, blah, 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 that nobody's ever heard of, that nobody's ever used even once. Imagine how hard it is for a buyer to figure out your stuff. It's terrible. Buyers are struggling. They don't really know what they want. Product research is actually really hard. Understanding features and value is really, really hard. Making a purchase decision is hard. And doing nothing looks really attractive. That's why the 40% of the people just throw up their hands and say, forget it. I can't figure it out. I'm just going to keep doing the same thing I'm doing. So we don't want a salesperson. We want you to Obi-Wan this shit and be our guide and help us on our, you know, journey of taking too many choices. I want, you know, like what I actually wanted in this thing is toilet Obi-Wan. I'm like, teach me the ways of toilet Obi-Wan anyways, and he come in and help me make a choice that I'm feeling really good about. If nobody takes a picture of this slide and puts it on Twitter, I'm gonna be really disappointed. <laughs> I worked hard on this, I built this slide. Um, now, what some people will say when I get into this, they'll say, yeah, but hang on. The guy in the toilet store, he's selling all the toilets. Like, you know, maybe he's not biased. He doesn't really care what toilet you buy. That's not true. I believe he was biased. I actually, he sold me a pretty expensive toilet. I think he gets commission. I think he was totally biased. But he gave me advice in a way that seemed authentic. And it seemed like he really wanted to connect me with the right product. I felt like if I had said toilets in the basement, I just needed the cheap one. He just sold me the cheap one. So I actually think that our knowledge and experience about a market, even though it's biased, and a customer knows it's biased, is actually really, really valuable to purchasers. Um, the key on this is it's not about going out and trashing the competition. It's about coming in and saying, look, th this is our point of view on the market. This is the way we look at it. This is what we think customers like you should do. You decide, but I'm going to at least give you my point of view on what this looks like. So let me give you a software example because I can't talk about toilets all day. They never invite me back. Um, so, uh, so this is a company I worked with. They're called Level Jump, and they're in the sales enablement space. So they make software that helps uh, helps you onboard a new sales rep. That's the space that they're in. So let's start with the situation. The situation is who's their competition? There are thousands, if you look up the G2 crowd grid on this thing, there's thousands of sales enablement software companies out there, but really they kind of fall into like two buckets. 
So the first alternative that customers have and what most of the customers are doing to start with is we're just going to put all the stuff, all the sales materials on a shared drive. And that actually works fine. If you don't have very many salespeople, whatever, it's fine. But then there's another group of solutions. And essentially what they do is... Uh, version control and distribution. So you could think of them as like a CMS. That's the approach. And so there, you know, all the solutions are slightly different, but I could lump them all in there. There's the CMS folks. And then the other group are the folks that actually have, you know, you can set up a course and people can get assigned to a course and get certified on a course. So we could put them in a bucket that says they're an LMS. So that's what I've got. You know, roll your own, put it on a drive. CMSs and LMSs, that's who I compete with. Now, Level Jump's big secret sauce is they're the only sales enablement tool that's built inside Salesforce. So what they do, like one of the key features they have, is you can actually combine your sales onboarding, like effectiveness data with the sales data. So I can see, did the onboarding work? Like, did it improve sales metrics? Did it improve time to first deal? Did it improve time to quota? That's the value that they deliver, right? So they're built on Salesforce, but the value is, I can actually tell whether my sales enablement stuff is working. Now, who cares about this? Not everybody. Some people just have a few sales reps, or they don't have a lot of turnover, or they're not hiring a lot of new sales reps, and putting it on the drive, or having a CMS, or doing a LMS is just fine. But if you're hiring a lot of sales reps because you're growing, or you just, the nature of your business is there's a lot of turnover, this thing is actually, really super good fit for you. So that's the situation. Now here's how we pitch it. So I could, and in fact these guys did at one point, very early days, if you came in and said, show me the product, they would show you the product, right? Because that's what you asked for. So they come in and say, we're logging in, uh, here, here's how you navigate around the app, here's how you set up the training, here's how the training gets assigned to sales reps, and at the very end of the thing we'd say, oh yeah, and by the way, here's how you track whether or not the training is work. It's working. And so the customer on the receiving end of that, they've already done the sales pitch with the CMS and the sales pitch with the LMS and they got their checklist of features and they're like, well, how hard is it to set up the training? And do you have the blah, blah feature that the other guys were talking about? And they're going down their little checklist and they don't even notice your thing at the end because they don't know whether that's important or not. Now, if I were to rework this as a point of view story, I would tell this story very differently. So I would start with this, it, my insight into the market which is why these folks built the thing they built in the first place. Their insight is, look, why is sales enablement important? It's important because every day your rep isn't making quota costs you money. <laughs> That's why it's important. So look at our alternatives here. We could put this stuff in the shared drive. We could use a CMS and that's great. You know, again, if you don't have too many sales reps and stuff doesn't change too much, that's okay. And, you know, or you could buy, pay a little extra, buy an LMS and then I can tell exactly who's taking what or whatever. But you know what none of these things do? None of them tell you whether the training's working. None of them. So, you know, if that's important to you, and they're typically selling to the head of um, sales enablement, so they're like, you ever have to prove to your boss whether or not this enablement stuff is actually working? I'm like, yeah, like if that's important to you, then let me show you how we do it. Then I get into the demo and I'm focused on that. I'm focused on my key differentiated value and I'm teaching them what matters. Um, so in the case of these guys, they grew really fast. They got recently acquired by Salesforce. Everybody's happy, rich. Um, so the point here is the point of view pitch transforms, here's what we built, which is what we usually do with a product walkthrough, into here's why we built it. 
So you as a customer can make sense of it and know whether or not this is the right choice for you. So a point of view pitch, the, the way I see it, it starts with your market insight. It recognizes that buyers have choices. It can successfully communicates the pros and cons for each of those choices. And this is where it gets uncomfortable. It freely admits that sometimes you are not the best solution. And it disqualifies people. Um, and then it describes the unique value that you have for your best fit customers. So, um, so how do we actually build a story that effectively communicates this point of view? Like, could we do that in a systematic way? Because I think this stuff is hard. Now, my day job um, is, you know, I used to be a repeat VP marketing, but now I'm a consultant and I, my focus area is positioning. And so this kind of came out of the work I was doing with companies, trying to help them with positioning. Um, it's really the answer to the question, like, I have this position in market, but how do I effectively tell a story around that? How do I teach my sales reps to talk about that? So here's how I think this point of view pitch can get constructed. So the first bit is we start with our market insight, and it's often the reason we built what we built, because we saw this gap in the market, right? So the insight is, eh, you know, there's pros and cons to all the other solutions out there. This, number two, this is the alternatives. But hey, look at this gap. And then the last bit is, you know, this is the value a company like you could get for closing that gap, and then here's how we do it. Instead of just jumping into, you know, here's how we do it. That stuff can actually all map very cleanly to your positioning. I'm a positioning lady. You thought I was going to go this whole talk and not talk about positioning. Wrong. Um, so when I say positioning, what I mean is first step in this is you got to get really clear and really tight on who do I actually compete with? And that includes the status quo, right? That includes do nothing, whatever that is. And then I'm looking at, well, what do I got that they don't have? My differentiated capabilities. Then I can translate that into value. Like, so what? for those capabilities. Why does a customer care? That's my differentiated value. And then importantly, who cares a lot about that value? Because not everybody cares the same, right? Like in my level jump example, you're not hiring a lot of new sales reps, it's kind of not the right thing for you. You're hiring a lot of new sales reps, you really need this thing. And then the last one's what's the market category, the category you win. I can map this stuff to this point of view pitch where I start with this insight. In the case of Level Jump, it's like, hey, like, why are we doing sales enablement in the first place? Like, shouldn't we be able to track this stuff? Then we get to the alternatives. I got CMSs, I got LMSs, and then I talk about the gap. Look, nobody, none of those things can help you measure this. And then I'm like, here's the value we can enable. If you can measure it, you can do it better. If you can measure it, you can change stuff. You can see how it's working. All this stuff is gonna make you money with your new sales reps that come on this way. And then we show you how we do that. So that's the point of view. I'm gonna give you a second example. Um, here's another company, I, I worked with these guys, I love them, they're so great. Maybe you know them, Help Scout. Um, they're in the uh, customer support market. Um, and specifically, if you look at their competitive alternatives, basically their competitive alternatives are like traditional help desk software. And nine times out of 10, it's Zendesk. So, you know, they're competing with Zendesk or something that looks like Zendesk. Um, and then, you know, when we looked at what capabilities they had that were different than Zendesk, there was a whole load of things. Like they have a shared inbox to make sure that a customer never gets lost. They always get taken care of. They don't 
assign customers a ticket, like people get assigned to people. Um, they have this integrated experience across channels. They let a customer decide what channel they want to deal with you through instead of just automatically pushing you to a low cost channel. Um, the value of all this is everything that Help Scout does is really oriented around giving the customer the best possible experience as opposed to getting them dealt with and support as quickly as possible so we can get on with the work that we actually want to do. So who cares about this? Well, th this insight came from Help Scout working with online businesses. A lot of online businesses don't actually deal with their customers ever except when they call support. So a lot of online businesses look at this and say, this is a golden opportunity to build loyalty. If we're a direct-to-consumer brand, loyalty is really, really important. So being able to give an amazing customer experience that's really customer-centric is actually super, super important here. So that's who cares. So how do I construct a point of view pitch around that? So again, it starts with this insight. And so this insight is, look, there are companies out there that see support as a growth driver and not a cost center. If you look at all the other alternatives out there, Zendesk, whatever things that look like Zendesk, they actually treat your customer like a pain in the neck. Like not even a person, we're gonna sign you a ticket. You're a ticket to me. <laughs> um, the gap is we're not doing what we could do in customer support to actually foster relationships, get deeper with the customer, love the heck out of the customer, and incent them to renew with us and be loyal to us and keep working with us. So um, we see the gap here is this just wasted opportunity to drive growth. And so the value that Help Scout delivers is the ability to optimize your support experience for customer happiness and loyalty to ultimately drive revenue. This is very different than me going on and saying, I got a shared inbox. Uh, customers can choose any channel, blah, 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 and putting it on the customer to figure out, does that matter? Why does that matter? Why do I care about these three or four kind of esoteric sounding little features? Instead, what I'm doing is I'm telling the whole story about why we built it that way. Why do those features matter? That's it. Um, these are the key takeaways. One, buying is super hard. Um, uh, our job in sales is actually to be a guide, uh, not to be a slimy salesperson that trashes the competition. Um, a point of view story um, helps, is designed to help customers make better decisions. Um, in order to do that, you have to kind of start with your positioning. Um, and you know, last one is buy a toilet toilet. If you ever gotta buy a toilet, uh, that, that's my advice, you should just do that. This is how you can contact me if you want to contact me. And, uh, and you know, they're doing podcasts here. And if anybody wants to do a podcast with me, I don't, I'm here all day. We should go to the podcast booth and make a podcast. Um, but anyways, thank you. That's it. Are we going to do questions? Yes, we are. Oh, great. I think the screech was me standing right by that speaker. I okay. love the question part. Thanks, April. Yeah, that's awesome. We have time for questions. Who would like this thrown at them? Are you good? So first? I'm, uh, I'm going to continue the toilet-related questioning, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> So let's say we build a product like a toilet seat that could add value irrespective of the big decision that our customers have already made to buy the toilet that they're in. Does what you presented change at all for products that are plugins, add-ins, value add on top of larger systems where we could complement all of those other, de like depending on what other big decisions yeah. they make, we could make complementary 
Yeah, I mean, you still have a buyer, mm -hmm. right? So to, to buyer is like the toilet manufacturer, mm -hmm. for example, right? So what you have to do is like, you've got these differentiated features. And I assume, you know, when you built the toilet seat, you woke up in the morning and said, you know what sucks about toilet seats? You know, they're too hard or something. I don't know. Like, and then you built your product to fill that gap. And so if you're selling to the manufacturer, it's about, you know, he, he, here's what you get with everybody else. Here's the thing only we can deliver. And here's why it's good for you. Like, here's the value for you. And in your case, if you're selling to, you know, the manufacturer is going to incorporate your thing and then sell it on, it's usually about, here's how you're going to sell more toilets by incorporating my thing in your toilet. So, you know, here's how you're going to make money off this thing. Occasionally it's a, here's how you're going to save money on this thing. But for the most part, it's, you're trying to describe the value to the, to the purchaser you know, why adopt this thing into your product and here's the money you're going to save. Awesome, thanks. You're welcome. I, I April over here. April in the middle. Oh, oh here. we have two boxes, so. Oh, there's two boxes. Oh, yep. wow, that's confusing. Sorry. It's like, the, it's like when they get the balloon going at the concert. <laughs> um, so back to your, like, salesman at the toilet store. You seem pretty analogous to an affiliate marketer. Like he kind of is a third party helping you pick. And from what I've seen, the good sources provide that POV to affiliate marketers to kind of help them create the yeah. content. Like, but I never see that as much in B2B. Are it, you seeing people try looking for affiliate marketers in B2B or is yeah. it just too hard? So, so I actually believe that vendors have an awesome opportunity to do that themselves. And they don't. They don't because they don't think buyers will believe them, and they don't think buyers want their point of view on why you should pick us versus the alternatives. I don't think we have to rely on third parties. Like he's, you know, maybe he's like an affiliate marketer, maybe, but it, but he absolutely makes more if I buy a more expensive toilet. But the thing that he did that was so good, which I think you can do as a vendor, is he came into that discussion with like, with me, helping me make the right choice right at the center. So we're often too chicken to do this in sales because we wanna sell everybody. But the reality is we should really only be trying to sell people that are really good fit for our stuff. Because if we sell the people that aren't a good fit, they're gonna churn on us and this is bad. It actually costs us money. And so, most of the companies I know that do a really good job of this, and the two companies I use as an example there, do exactly this in their sales meetings, and most of the bigger software companies I've worked at do exactly this. They paint a picture of the market, and they say, look, if all you want is X, Y, Z, pick the other guys. It's a better fit. Because if you pick us, you're gonna churn, because we don't actually have differentiated value for you. So. I think that there's wasted, a huge wasted opportunity here, particularly in startups, because we pussyfoot around this, like, we don't want to talk about competitors. But like, if you look at Level Jump, for example, like, they never mention the competitors by name. Occasionally, a customer will ask them, well, what do you think about Showpad? Or what do you think about, you know, competitor X? And they'll say, well, they, they kind of fit in this LMS bucket. So they're really good if you want to do this, but if you want this, they can't do it. You decide. It's up to you to decide, customer, but I'm going to be the guide and tell you. 
So the same thing with Help Scout. Like they're always against Zendesk. They don't say, Zendesk sucks, you should buy us, right? Everybody should buy us. It's not true. Some people are actually a great fit for Zendesk. But what they do is they come in and say, look, if you're worried about this, we're a super good fit. And they acknowledge that if you don't worry about that, maybe you're not a good fit. Maybe you should buy the other guys. And so I think if we can do that in a kind of straight up authentic sort of a way, customers love it and you sell a lot of software. So I didn't really answer your question. I don't know a lot of people doing an amazing job of affiliate marketing. Most, like, most of the companies I'm working with are B2B and so they don't do a lot of that stuff. But I do think we have massive opportunity to do it ourselves. Um, so my I serve people who in a community that has been really underserved for decades. And so most of my customers believe that they have to choose, legally they have to choose something like my product, but most of them suck and they right. just think all of them suck. And yeah. I just, how do you address that in your POV? What, like, how do you, so the question that, that, is, like, how do yeah, you address this? The idea that perhaps you could get actual value from this if you <laughs> bought from me. Right, right. Yeah. Sometimes we have this thing that customers have been so burned in a segment with t terrible solutions that we show up with something great and they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> We've heard that before. Um, there's a few ways to address this. So sometimes we actually end up addressing it by positioning ourselves in a different market. We can't always get away with this because people are actually looking for that solution and the other things. So you can't actually hop markets. But sometimes you say, you know what? Those guys are that and that sucks. We're not that. We're this other thing. And then you explain what that is. So sometimes we can get away with that. Um, other times we can't. Like we actually want to stay in this market. And then our challenge is, is, you know, not just to talk about the value, but prove that it's true. And so, you know, we have options for doing that. Sometimes we can have, you know, independent third parties review us or, you know, analysts review our stuff or things like that. Sometimes we spend a lot of time, you know, working with customers to get good customer case studies and good quotes and good things. Sometimes we get deep into the metrics and show them the metrics and say, look, here are the metrics. This is what you can expect with us. You know, the, the other folks don't have those numbers. We can do it this way. But the big thing is to go really heavy on, we can't just say it's true, we actually gotta prove it's true if we've got a terrifically skeptical audience that has heard the lies before, been burnt by the lies before, and then we're coming in later and they're like, yeah, sure you do it. Um, so you have to really lean into this. We don't just say it, we actually do it. Here's the proof that we actually get it done so you can overcome that objection. You're welcome. April over here. Over here? Oh, over here. Uh, over the past 10 years, we've heard a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, positioning has been described typically to talk about the psychographics about the end user or the buyer. So yeah. typically, it's what's the gain for them or what's, what's the pain point or how does their job yeah. description, you know, how does your product essentially help them? I noticed that a lot of your positioning doesn't necessarily include that kind of conversation. Yeah. I'm wondering if you're, if you have like a, you know, a riff or something that maybe doesn't, like you're against that, or is oh, that how I does do. that fit into your <laughs> matrix of, of positioning? That which I love. I mean, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so when I started in marketing, 
um, I was taught that, right? We have to start with the customer's pain. And most of the sales reps I worked with at, when I started in marketing had been trained to do that. So what they would do in a sales meeting is they would walk in and do this, have the pain discussion, you know, like, what's your pain? Like, what are you struggling with? All this stuff. And then the reps would then try to build a custom pitch to respond to whatever the customer's pain was. And that, on the surface of it, that actually makes a lot of sense. Until you actually dig into it and it's like, my dude, we have this crummy little piece of software that does two things. I don't solve everybody's pain. I don't solve all the pains. I can go in and have that nice conversation, but at the end of the day, I only solve these two little things. So why don't I just lean into that? So I think we spend too much time with this, like, customers have all this pain and we need to understand the pain. Like, uh, uh, most of our software doesn't actually solve 9,000 pain points. It, it solves a very limited number of them. And so if we've done our job right in customer discovery before we built the product, and then observing what happens after we get our first wave of customers, we know the pain that we solve better than anyone else. And so we should just run at that. The trick of this isn't actually figuring out the customer's pain. The trick is figuring out which customers have the pain that we solve. And are there enough of them to build a business on? If there isn't, then we need to go back to the drawing board on product. So I think we, we spend too much time pretending we're consulting businesses. We can solve all the pains with custom software. We're not building custom software. We, we, we have a thing and it only does five things. <laughs> and so, what we so it's kind of a pointless conversation. The other thing is that um, it puts a lot of the onus on the customer. Like you're asking the customer to know a lot of stuff. And I think really good sales and marketing uh, involves quite a bit of commercial teaching, where we're saying, look, these are your options. This is what you could do. If you think this is interesting, you should come to us, because we do this stuff. Instead of sort of saying, like, we solve all the pains. We don't solve all the pains. We only solve a tiny little bit of the pain. So that's my kind of practical advice on that. I think, I think we act like we're custom software houses when in fact we just have a product that just does these four things and we should just focus on that. I don't know if that answers the question. Last question over here. Uh, I recently put a, a new landing page that was comparing my product with other products and it is one of the biggest drivers of growth at the moment. Yeah. But as a solopreneur who doesn't have a sales team to reach out and, and go through these kind of pitches. How do you kind of get people to start, you know, how do you, how do you give them that point of view walkthrough? Is it just landing pages, you know, at, at different ways or like yeah. how do you get that? Yeah. So the question is like, how do you do this if you don't have salespeople? Um, there's so many ways to do it. And I've seen companies do this in like super creative ways. Like, um, I wish I had included in the deck now, but, um, the Level Jump, one of the companies that I talked about in this, at one point, people were so confused because there's so many products and categories in sales technology. People were so confused. They created this piece of content and it was called Sales Tech Explained Using Donuts. And so it was like, 
uh, you know, so there's something like, you know, call listeners. It was like, you know, I find out who likes the donuts, you know, and then, then, then whatever is, you know, I, you know, I find out who, you know, who's doing something else with the donuts. But then they got down to their, their segment, which is this sales onboarding, sales enablement. And they were like, sales onboarding, sales enablement is really about, um, I teach people how to sell the donuts as opposed to all the other things. So you can do some creative things with content. I've seen other folks really lean into um, like kind of the story of the gap, right? So they're focused on, look, there's solutions out there and some of those are solutions are really good at this, and some of the solutions are really good at this, and some are really good at this, but look at this gap. And we're here to, to fill that gap. And so I think you can do that in your marketing and your content. Um, I've seen folks do like the equivalent of that sales pitch in a white paper. Um, I've seen folks do the equivalent of that sales pitch in a buyer's guide. Buyer's guide is actually, in my opinion, super underutilized and always fantastic performing piece of content. Every company I ever worked with, we did a buyer's guide. It always worked. And because it works because it solves this problem of how do I buy? <laughs> and so the other thing is, it's great signal. Like if somebody downloads your buyer's guide, my God, they're in the middle of a sales process. Maybe you should pick up the phone and call them, right? Or send them an email and say, hey, can I help you? And be toilet or Obi-Wan, right? At that moment. Um, but so I think there's a lot of ways to do this in your marketing and in your content and the way you talk about this stuff. Um, I've also seen companies that are more product-led growth really get into this um, in the way they onboard customers to try to make sure that they get at this differentiated value super early. So um, Level Jump did a little bit of this where it's like, you know, instead of taking you through the 19 steps to do whatever, you know, they got you right into this metrics thing right in the beginning because you need to experience that to really understand the differentiated value. If you don't get to that, you're gonna be like, why am I not just using LMS? You know, this is just like an LMS. So I think there's a lot of ways to do this without actually doing it with a sales pitch. But I think if you have salespeople, I think the rubber really meets the road in a first sales meeting. If you can do this well in a first sales meeting, you close a lot of business. But I think marketing can do it. I think product can do it. Is that it? Thanks again. Okay, yep. thank you. Yeah.